I feel that I have a personal mission in life, and that's to increase happiness and decrease misery. Welcome back to All In. Hey, I'm Rick Jordan, and I have an amazing guest today, Mitzi Perdue. Hi, Mitzi. Hi, Rick. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. I mean, just your life is incredible. I mean, married to the gentleman who founded Sheridan Hotels, right? Actually, that oh, was I have my... it reversed. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> now, my father uh, was president and co-founder of the Sheridan Hotel chain. And it was my late husband, uh, my beloved hero, who was the chicken man, Frank Perdue. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, I love that. And now you, you had such this amazing breadth of experience because of those who have been around your life and lifted you up. And now you're, you've really taken on the cause of human trafficking, right? Oh, totally right. I, I expect to spend the rest of my days doing everything I possibly can to combat it. And there's some really cool things that are coming up that, you know, it would even, it would relate to your professional background. That's exciting. Tell me about Win This Fight. All right, Win This Fight. Uh, where, where do I even start? But I, let's start with the name. My interest in human trafficking is I raise money for other anti-trafficking organizations, and I also raise awareness and the way, the original way for doing this was to have a very high value auction where mm. ultra high net worth people would give donations to the, but a physical property like jewelry or paintings, um, or how about yachts and uh, jet airplanes? There would be an auction that would convert tangible property into cash that people could give to the anti trafficking organization of their choice. And the purpose of that is it raises awareness because the gifts that have come in are just spectacular. I mean, PBS has already done a, a special on it. Uh, but the gifts raise a lot of money, but they also um, raise a lot of awareness. Sure. So, so that's, but, for, but to start with the name, the name was ori originally the, the Global Anti-Trafficking Auction. A guy called me up. He's a neuromarketer. His background is neuroscience. And this guy called up and he said, you know, Mitzi, that name absolutely sucks. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Don't you love and, the honesty of marketers? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Frank Perdue absolutely cherished when people would tell him what was wrong because you can do something about it. Yeah. Well, in this case, I could do something about it. I said, what's wrong? And he said, you can't remember it. Doesn't roll off the tongue and there's no call for action. And he said that he had looked up on, um, I don't know, GoDaddy or something and found the name win this fight. Hmm. And he said, what's good about it is there's a call to action. It's memorable. But best of all, the initials of win this fight are WTF. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and he said, you have to have some wrongness if you're going to be memorable. So when I invite people to text WTF to 51555, the, uh, the keyword's not hard to remember, the WTF. I love that. I love what he said, too, that you have to have a bit of a wrongness in order to be remembered. That's, that's incredible. It's 
so true. There's so many studies on this. I mean, I'm not going to get political, but just consider tweets that everybody talks about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the ones that they talk about will have a date wrong, a name wrong, a piece of grammar wrong. That's incredibly del deliberate because neuroscientists know that you have to have some wrongness if people are going to talk about it all day long. That's fantastic. And it, there's a lot that's wrong about human trafficking. So, I mean, everything just goes right into that, you know? And uh, yes. There's a, uh, it really grips my heart. I, I remember when my kids were born and just not even because I have twins who are my oldest boy and a girl uh, and uh -huh. they're 13 now. And, you know, but they're, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> well, no, that's terrible from the point of view of uh, caring about human trafficking because oh, that's right you. in the center of, of what a trafficker would like. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. At first, I thought you said there, it was, or you meant it was terrible because they're 13 and they're teenagers. <laughs> no, I it's think that's wonderful. Because, yeah. <laughs> no, it's divine to be a parent of, yeah. I mean, that's the best thing in my life, my children and grandchildren. No doubt. But you're right. I mean, that age, that's just, they're vulnerable. They, they're the size of adults at this point. And just if we're going to inject a little wrongness, they have all the right things going for them at this age in order to just entice somebody who's not right in the head. And uh, I, I'm very crass when it comes to this because I, I don't see traffickers as being human beings anymore. You know, because it, it's uh, the, the part of what they do and how they do it and how they exact their, their influence over other people is something that completely separates them out of the human race from my perspective. You know, so it's well, almost I was talking. I, I write a weekly blog and I've written you know, at least a hundred of them so far. And one of the topics that I often bring up is I'll interview a psychiatrist or a professor of psychology to find out why do people do this? And you know, you might be interested in, in an answer I heard recently. Please. If, all right. This, this comes from two sources. One is his name's Dr. Robert Kenko. He used to be head of the department of psychiatry, New York, University Medical School. And he said, you know, you might think that somebody who's going after a 10-year-old girl or boy, you might think that they're just wildly oversexed. He said, uh-uh, sex has just the tiniest bit to do with yeah, it. Yeah. What it's really about is a sick desire to dominate and control. You got it. And so how did they get that way? And over and over again, it happens that their first sexual experience, they're, they're going to replicate it. For, you know, something that happened in their past means that they're kind of frozen, like they've still got a 10-year-old mindset. Uh, and, okay, I can't swear that this is true, but I can swear that knowledgeable people told me that a lot of the cases of men who are pedophiles, that they're replicating the point at which their emotional growth stopped. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I wonder if that's, do you think that that was by choice at that point or from a traumatic experience from what you were told? Uh, I'm going to go with a traumatic experience. Yeah, that's intriguing. That's intriguing. And, uh, you know, I think we can stipulate that that's not the case for every, every individual. But that seems to be what pushes people over into this craziness. It's arrested development where they, where they just didn't grow beyond that. And, and the person who has, 
I, I think I can use the word illness, who has this, this illness. Um, you know, they don't choose to be that way, but the growth stopped. The, you know, the rest of us tend to like people our own age that we can relate to and have emotional closeness to. But if, you're, if your growth stopped at age 10 because of a traumatic experience, um, I, I don't think it's a choice for the pedophile to keep doing it. I think, I think they've, they've got unfor- unconscious forces that are pushing them that way. That's interesting. Yeah, because I've seen uh, in my background in intelligence training, I've seen that side of it for sure. And I've also seen the other side to where it's become a choice. You know, and ju- just uh, purely empirical evidence. That's it. I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but it's just an observation. And I'm with you because there are those that I've seen that are, that it's like they're frozen in time you know, in their developments. And for them, it's we can try to get them help, you know, but at the same time, it's like how do you almost have to separate them from society while they're receiving that help too, you know, and that way there's no danger to anybody that's around them or anyone else. But then there's also those who have gone through that, that then I've seen make a conscious choice to continue because it, I mean, you're in the business of raising capital for the organizations that fight this, you know, child trafficking in a nutshell is also a business. You know, there, there's, oh, it's, it's, well, now we come to the second part of, yeah. of what I'm doing, which is there was going to be this fantastic auction. It's been put off at least for a year, possibly two years, uh, but it, it had the potential of raising a hundred million dollars. Like just one gift that came in. This was from a Taiwan jeweler, a 69 carat perfect ruby that belonged to a Qing dynasty emperor. You know, it in a good year, it might bring $60 million. So, and, and, PBS has done a story about some of these gifts. However, because of COVID-19, the auction is put off because, you know, the economy is uncertain enough so that you're not going to bid up the super high prices that we had hoped for. So, so we're doing something instead. And by the way, this circles right back to your expertise. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the following. There's a group, it's called the International Fraud Group. It, I believe they're, they represent 47 different countries and they have the ability to, or, or what they do professionally is they can track money flows. And supposing that you're a trafficker, you know, you're not going to get by and barter. No, you have to have financial institutions where you put this money and with $150 billion, which is what the UN says, that's how much money is involved in trafficking. Yeah. yeah. What these people have the capability of doing is they've got dark web capabilities, artificial intelligence capabilities, covert action capabilities, immense knowledge of law and accounting. And they can simply trace money and and what they do once they've, they've found a bank account where the money comes from traffickers, they have the ability to freeze it. Because no bank wants to be caught with illegal money. You know, it's a reputational risk or a fine risk, or they could even be put out of business. Uh, Then the largest anti-trafficking organization in the United States uh, is very interested in this approach, but they don't have the, the reach that the international fraud group does. You put the two together and it potentially, we could go after the biggest reason that the traffickers do it. And that is money. We could freeze their bank accounts and make it uneconomic to do it. 
cool? <laughs> that is super cool. There's a, there's a concept that I always put out there is that money is nothing more than a tool. Yeah, and uh, say that again, please. Money is nothing more than a tool. Yeah, it's a it's something that it allows you to achieve a certain outcome. You know, whether that's just options in your life, or whether that's to advance your cause, whether that's to impact other lives in a positive or a negative way, it's nothing but a tool. You know, so people that search after that, of course, there's the traffickers that are just they think that that's the be all and end all. But I love the international fraud group that you're explaining because they're literally using money as a tool to stop the the spread of this situation it's fantastic and then you're raising okay, capital in order to do the same thing i love it okay but i should quickly point out that what i just described of seizing the bank accounts and freezing the bank accounts of the traffickers uh it's being explored between one of the largest financial institutions in the world and one of the largest anti-trafficking organizations in the world, and then the International Fraud Group. They haven't, they aren't doing it yet. Uh, but they, the proof of concept is the following. Somewhere around 15 years ago, one of the largest software manufacturers was against, up against a problem that's very like what we have with traffickers, which is if you're a software pirate, if you have counterfeit software, you can make, you can sell it for like $200 and the discs cost you nine cents. The profits were just insane. So the large software manufacturer was trying to stop this because they were losing tens of millions of dollars to pirates. And what they were up against is kind of what we're up against right now, which is you shut one down and another pops up. It was whack-a-mole until the International Fraud Group went to the large software company and said, you know, you're doing it wrong. Uh, instead of putting the bad guy, the counterfeiters in jail, instead, let's just make it non unprofitable for them. We'll seize their bank accounts and we know how to do it. In a rather short time, they made it simply uneconomic to be a software counterfeiter because it's not that they were going to end up in jail. I mean, they might, but the real thing is, the software company would get the money that the counterfeiters had uh, had collected. So just hypothetically, you're a software counterfeiter. You've got a million dollars in the bank and that's frozen and the money goes back to the software company. You've put in all this work and you haven't gotten a penny. And then from the software maker's point of view, they were making, they were getting back 20 to $30 for every dollar that they invested in, in shutting down the counterfeiters. <laughs> well, so what if, what, you, you might wonder why hasn't this been done already to, to, count, to, act, to counteract traffickers? And the answer is the people who have this expertise and generally, they can't do it as a volunteer because you know, they've got mortgages and kids' colleges to pay. Somebody has to raise somewhere around $10 million to fund them to do this. And that's what I'm interested in doing right now, finding money to fund the efforts that I've just described. And I think it's going to happen. Um, I'm not quite sure how yet, but the pieces are falling in place because three of the major players, each of which has something like the the the, the largest uh, 
anti-trafficking organization. I think it's the largest in the United States. I mean, maybe it's second or third, but it has spectacular amounts of data. The International Fraud Group needs data to, to make it all work. Uh, the, the, largest, uh, the largest financial institution that, is, that has a passion for doing something about human trafficking. Now, you put all those three pieces together and yeah, we're actually working right now to see how they can work together. But as far as I can tell, they're all excited about it and they all see the potential. That's fantastic. There's so much that just gets me excited about what you're saying, about the, the methods that they're using, because they're using technology, they're using money to stop this. It's, it's a business in and of itself. Now, was there anything that you learned from your father and your late husband that helped you apply to what you're doing right now? Uh, yeah. All right. Here's something that I learned from my father. And you have to refresh people's memories. He was the found the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel chain and went from no employees to 20,000 at the time of his death. And you know, I'm forever asking him how he did this and as a child. And we're talking the 1930s when he was uh, when he was growing the company. He died in 1967 and we sold the company then. But things that I learned from him, he said that he would try a one in a hundred chance if, if there was a big enough payoff. Well, he felt that his competitors might stop at a one in 20 chance or a one in 40 chance. So he was, he was very much about taking long shots. And yeah, I, I think of what I'm doing right now, darned if it isn't a long shot. I mean, the, the idea that I'm 79, that, that one 79 year old person sitting in a small town in Maryland could could pull this off is how about small, but the payoff is so enormous that I'm ready to spend the rest of my life working on it. That's awesome. You're inspiring me today because it's, it is that right. And it's a uh, one part I heard a, or one quote about entrepreneurs that I heard one time is that it's, you know, everyone else will try to find 100 reasons to not do something. Right. And then it's the entrepreneur or the, the person that really is a visionary that will just look for that one single reason why it could work, <laughs> you know? that, that long shot. And the, I love that because it, it's the long shots are not necessarily worth it. Right. Unless there's a big payoff. So, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that my father had in mind really big payoffs. Of course. <laughs> but, but, but he I mean, the proof is in the pudding. He started with one hotel, ended with 400. Uh, Playing the long shots, if the payoff is big enough, uh, go for it. All in. You got it. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah, I'm, as, I'm as all in as can be because, I mean, I'm way, 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 way out on a limb on this uh, and there's no guarantees of success. But the way I frame it to myself is there are no guarantees of success, but I can give yeah. you an awfully big guarantee of failure. And that's not to try. How did you get involved in this? Was there... a one pivotal point in your life to where you said, you know what, I need to do something about this. I need to step up against trafficking. April 11th of 2019, I had two o'clock. There might be something. Yes. That specific. It was that specific. I bet that there are a lot in our audience who were like where I was two years ago. And that was the word human trafficking. It didn't really have any meaning to me. It just sort of glides by and floats away. But then I heard this lecture, and it was accompanied by videos. And 
it showed a group of 12-year-old girls who, I mean, they were being videoed because this was part of a rescue operation and they were videoed before they were rescued. And I could not unsee what I saw in the faces of these little girls, you know, terror, fear, just kind of a frozen, a frozen agony. And I couldn't unsee that. And I learned that these little girls, that they were forced to have sex with strangers, typically 12 times a night, it might be 20 times a night, and that their life expectancy was less than seven years because they were going to die of an overdose or suicide or disease or organ harvesting. And I thought, you know, this is the most evil thing in the world. I want to spend the rest of my life doing anything that I possibly can to help fight this. But then I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't have any experience in rescue or rehabilitation. Uh, yeah, there's there's no way that I could provide services myself. I, it's not my skill set or my personality. But I do have a background in media. And I began talking with, with heads of different anti-trafficking organizations. And by the way, there are a lot of them. The UN recognizes at least 2,000. Well, so I'm talking with with anti-trafficking organization personnel finding out what they need. And how about every single person I talked with, and I bet I've ta- I've done articles on a, more than a hundred so far, every single one of them needs money and awareness. And I thought, well, my by having an anti-trafficking auction where people could convert high value items into cash, I could do a lot to raise awareness and a lot to raise cash for other organizations. And uh, that's what I've been doing. That's awesome. You took what you knew already and then you just transposed that skill set into a completely new area that has a huge impact on human lives. I love that. Thank you for doing that, Mitzi. That's, that's incredible. It's the same as me, really, because I, I take what I know in cybersecurity and we're applying it towards something that saves human lives. Uh, and I... That's why we're put on this earth, right? Is to help and save other people. I feel that I have a personal mission in life, and that's to increase happiness and decrease misery. And boy, does human trafficking fit in that. For sure it does. For sure it does. We're into something else, which I'd love to show you. Please. Uh, What you're about to see is a red bandana with polka dots and a bow and... This comes from one of the volunteers for Win This Fight. We we have approximately 500 of them. And the the number of brilliant ideas that people have to to help with anti-trafficking is just spectacular. I feel that Win This Fight sort of unleashes a lot of energy and thoughts as well as money and awareness. Now, the thing that I'm wearing, one of Margot Dusterhouse, who's one of the volunteers who thought of this, she said, Rosie the Riveter, somewhere around 75 years ago, she left her home, went into a factory, and arranged by, by women coming out of their homes and into the factories, they, that meant that a lot of men were free to fight the battle against Nazism. And so what Margot suggested is, let's have a 21st version, 21st century version of Rosie the Riveter but it will be Rosie the Liberator. And we're asking people 
to, they don't have to have the, the bandana, but we do want them to uh, strike a rosy pose. And what Rosie did is, you know, she's kind of looking towards her fists and That's she right, makes yep. a muscle. <laughs> and we're inviting people to, to take selfies of themselves. And you know, I don't want people to spend a lot of time on it. Just you know, snap one. And I don't care what the background is. But the cool thing is uh, people have been posting it to social media. And then part, if you're part of the Rosie the Liberator, or it could also be Rusty the Liberator, because we want guys in this. Uh, the, the cool thing is uh, we ask people to invite two other people to do it. And we also invite people to give $5 to the anti-trafficking organization of their choice. And this has only been started like, I don't know, a week ago, and already thousands of dollars have been flowing in. And, and yeah, just for the success of it, oh my Lord, one guy heard about this and he said, yeah, you've asked for two. I don't think I heard you right. I think you said 21. And he's working <laughs> on getting 21 people to do it. That's great. It's fun how that can just spider out like that as it yeah. catches on too. Yeah, it's, it starts with one person having an idea and other people liking it. And I don't know if this will happen or not, but I wrote a pitch letter to NBC and uh, Good Morning America. I, f I forget which is which, but I've heard back from them. And I know that uh, talking about Rosie the Liberator is being considered by them. Whether they'll actually do it or not, I don't know. But this is, again, on taking a long shot. It's a really long shot to get on national television. But why not ask? And you know, at this moment, we don't know what will happen. You got it. And the payoff is huge, too. The payoff is inconceivably <laughs> yeah. big. But if it's not this year, I'm a patient person. Maybe it'll be next year. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So you've started into this venture. It's been about two years now, almost two years, right? From that, you know, along the way, what, what have been some of your biggest failures that you've had? Oh, biggest failure without doubt is uh, the anti-trafficking auction was supposed to take place just about now. But with COVID-19, the auction house suggested, it didn't suggest, they stated that this just wasn't a good time to try to get maximum amount of money for, for the donations to come in. And by the way, the donors keep the items until like, I don't know, two months before the auction. So if everybody who's made a donation still gets to keep their stuff. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, that, that was very disheartening because you know, in theory, by now, we might have $100 million to give to anti-trafficking organizations. Yeah, I know. That's and the biggest, the biggest I mean, pitfall. That, that's a heartache. But what, all right, this is another philosophy that's taken me through life. One door shuts to open. Uh, yeah, so when the anti-trafficking auction had to be put on ice, and you know, I'm as discouraged as a person can be, and then I started thinking, well, what else is there? And it was at that point that I heard of the International Fraud Group. And I'm a public speaker. And I got invited to speak to the International Fraud Group. And I got to know some of the members of it. And they would love to fight trafficking. It's just that they can't do it for free. But they, they would love to use their skills and expertise. And if we can raise the money to, to pay for them, it, I think it will do more good than any auction ever would have. So, boy, a, a great big door opened. 
That's exciting. Yeah, it did for sure. There, there's a phrase that I saw that was floating around with your name called an invisible mentor. I, I, would you say that again? Yeah, there was a phrase that that uh, I don't know if if this is something that you've been labeled, but an invisible mentor. You know, specifically to aspiring business women. You know, and I know you've you've looked through a lot. I'm not really shifting gears, but I love how you taking business because there's a greater cause that I have and what I do. You know, even in cybersecurity, and you've taken business, and I feel that women especially have this about them to where they can have a greater mission, and they're always very much so mission minded. Women are, you know, and it's amazing. But you took business and then shifted it over into this incredible cause. You know, what advice do you have to other women who have this just big dream to help other people? Well, the biggest advice is just go for it. Uh, I, I have a motto that I recommend to everybody, and it goes like this. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> and, and yes, I did deliberately get that back. To, to me, there, there are two things that, that hold everybody back. And, you know, I've, I've lived through it myself. And one is fear of failure. And the other is uh, fear of pulling the trigger, figuratively speaking. Uh, you know, the fear of failure. Let me share a story about, about my own career. I have a Harvard degree. Uh, I also have a, a master's in public administration. But by somewhere around age 34, I realized I'm not doing a whole lot with my life. I'd always wanted a career in communications, but I had never, I'd never... I'd never had an audition. I'd never even asked for an audition. I wanted to be a writer. I hadn't submitted stuff. And yeah, one day I realized that what was holding me back was just terror of getting the rejection slips or, or being told, hey, you're not good enough. But then it occurred to me that I needed to redefine failure. And my life exploded in, in positive things once I defined failure as not trying. That every time that I got a rejection slip or failed an audition, I have the attitude, I'm a winner because I tried. And that the one way to guarantee, to guarantee failure is not to try. But the reason that I'm, I'm ready to say that any time that I tried for something, even if, even if by other standards I failed, I didn't get exactly what I was after. Along the way, by, by giving it my all and trying with everything I've got, I met people, I took courses, I read books, I prepared myself so that I was farther along the road to success. I developed my skill set. And so advice for women, try, give it your all, do everything that you can yeah, not only the self-talk of I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, although I recommend that, but also take action. You know, I, I don't know, I can't jump into the minds of each listener or viewer, but I can make a guess that a lot of people have, have dreams and don't get held back by fear of failure, but also in the process of trying to achieve that dream, now, just expect that you're going to get the turn downs and hitting a brick wall. I mean, that's paying your dues. It, it, there are very few things that just drop in your lap. So don't get discouraged by what other people might call failure. Redefine it. As long as you've tried, you're a winner. And then I, I mentioned about like figuratively pulling the trigger. 
you know, I'm, I'm totally in favor of, of the self-talk of I can do it, but darn it, you have to actually do it. Go out there and act, <laughs> execute. I love that. There's a shifting back to the trafficking because it's a, I, my brain was going to the, the auctions are for high net worth inv individuals, right? Because they're extremely valuable objects that you're auctioning off. Yeah, and that's amazing because you go where the money is, and that's where the what that's what the traffickers do too, right? They go where the money is. You know, that's what drives them. From a from a a person who might not be as high net worth and can jump in on an auction like this, you know, what can the masses do to help get involved? Okay, it's it's a two part plan. The first part was the the very high value auction, and I think I already mentioned the sixty nine carat. Ruby. Oh yeah. Um, I want that. <laughs> yes. I hope you'll ask me sometime how I happen to get a 69 carat Ruby and what it looks like. <laughs> well, uh, tell but, me. But, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm having this terrible feeling that I'm so enthusiastic that I keep running down different rabbit holes. Uh, it's okay. You're in good company. With, I'm the same way. <laughs> uh, thank you. But uh, to answer the first question of, of since not everybody <laughs> has a 69 carat Ruby to donate, what about the rest of us? And it's a two-part plan. The first one is the ultra high value auction. And the auction house, by the way, is so enthusiastic about this that they agreed to forgo their 20% commission. So if you have a million dollar necklace, uh, you get to give a million dollars to the, to the recipient. But then what about the rest of us? Well, my hope was that the anti-trafficking auction, the high net worth one, the high value one, would get so much uh, global attention that that when we have the auction for the rest of us, uh, this will be you know, hopefully through like eBay and uh, you know auction houses throughout the online auction houses throughout the world. Uh, it would be maybe half a year or even a year afterwards, but. I would love for absolutely everybody, you know, to be both a seller and a buyer. And on a given day, you you put up your I don't know grandma's embroidery or or candlesticks or whatever, and you say where you want that money to go. And you know, maybe it's fifty dollars, maybe it's a thousand dollars. Actually, I don't even care. I just want you to be involved. <laughs> uh, but but that's uh, that's two to three years out. However, that that's the plan for the auction. But I, I can't tell you how eager I am to get volunteers. If somebody wants to volunteer, I'll make a commitment and get your smartphone out because I'm going to give you a text, uh, a text message and, and a number, a, a key number for it to go to. Awesome. I'm going to do it right now. What is that text? Okay. okay. Is it WTF? Text Exactly. Yes. WTF. And, and, you know, I'm so happy that it's memorable because you don't, it doesn't take that much work to remember WTF. <laughs> the harder part is the number 51555. I hope it's working. Texting right now. WTF to 51555 immediately. Thank you for joining the fight. An insider's perspective of human trafficking. View www.winthisfight.org. All right. Do I get updates now with everything yeah, you're you doing? Will. Awesome. Oh, I'm just so pleased <laughs> because I'll, I'll tell you the commitment that I make to anybody who chooses to volunteer is I will do my absolute utmost 
to give you responsibilities that match your interests and the amount of time that you have. And I'll never ask you for more time than what you want to give. But here's what happens. When you get involved in this and you find that, you know, that there are people who just cherish what your skills are, uh, you'll find that the time just flows by and that you, you, know, you kind of regret that there aren't more hours in the day to help. And you know, hours in the day might mean five minutes once a week. But my commitment is I won't ask you for more time than you, than you want to give. And you'll have the satisfaction of having your skills used to support. How about one of the most meaningful things in the world? And that is helping avoid suffering, playing a role in something that the whole world should unite around. There, there's, it's the wrongness of, of a 12-year-old girl or boy being raped 10 times a night. I mean, that's just, it's got to stop. And we can be part of stopping it. We sure can. I think everybody can get behind that. And it's uh, www.winthisfight.org. And yeah. And if somebody wants to get hold of me, uh, there's a contact form on winthisfight.org. And I, I make a commitment to answer anybody who, who writes to me, but it's also a place where, where you can volunteer. And, you know, whether you've got five minutes, you know, that one of the best ones that has come out just by, you know, I get kind of superstitious. You put ideas out in the universe and it's just astonishing to me what comes back. That there's a woman who had, she had a 30-year career fighting human trafficking. She retired. And she felt, though, like half a year into her retirement, she felt, yeah, I still want to help. I still want to be in the game. I still want to serve. And she contacted me. And you know, the skills and the contacts she has are just unbelievable. So, but trust me, I'm not asking everybody to be like her. I'm, I'm utterly happy with the person whose complete uh, contribution is that she reads my blog or he reads my blog. And I want the largest number of blog readers possible, partly because I think they'll find the information really, really interesting. But partly when I go call on, and I'm being hypothetical here or aspirational, but supposing I'm calling on Jeff Bezos and I can tell him, hey, a million people read my blog. Uh, he has to pay attention to me. And maybe that's the way I get the 10 million that that will fund the anti-trafficking efforts of of attacking the finances of the of the traffickers. That's where we have to start is with the finances, but everyone else can get involved just by bringing awareness, by reading your blog, by donating time. If they don't have a 69 carat ruby laying around, that's what they can do. I, I still I love you, even if you don't have a 69 carat ruby. <laughs> that's great. I would, I would love to see that thing in person. That'd, that'd oh, well, let me tell you what it's like. Please. Uh, all right. The, in 2019, I was spending full time. How about traveling the world, getting just unbelievable donations? And because if if you're an ultra high net worth person, and I'm personally aware of a list of 750 billionaires, if you're an ultra high net worth person, the odds are that you've got some pretty amazing artwork or jewelry or historical items that are in storage. Oh, I mean, it just happens and I've seen it. Well, I was in Taiwan and I met a man who's a jeweler. And he invited me to come to his house for tea and he knew perfectly well what I was there for. 
and I'm sitting in the second floor of his home and it's a tea room. And yeah, we're talking about this and that. And then he tells me, you're a, a very, very smart, intelligent guy. He said, you're aware that this is the second largest source of income for organized crime. Uh, that they probably have your name. I mean, you might get killed. What do you think about that? And I answered something, you know, just without thinking about it. I just opened my mouth and this came out. I said, I'm 78 years old. I believe in this cause. I don't care. Well, at that point, this elderly man, he got up and behind his chair was sort of like a curtain. And he pulls the curtain and there's a safe. And he, you know, manipulates the safe, opens it and scoops out this great big thing that it's somewhere between the size of a golf ball and maybe a little smaller, maybe an egg, but it's, it's, it's a Ruby. And, uh, you know, he hands it to me and he says, this is yours. And I'll give you a clue of the size of it. Do you see the ring that I'm wearing? All right. That's five carats. Can you imagine 69.7 carats? It's just unthinkable. Oh, wow. But, but on top Not of really. that, yeah, just a, a, a ruby that size, uh, there aren't very many of them in the world, but then it has a history. This man had inherited it because as far as I can tell, his family way back were the hereditary uh, curators of the Qing dynasty jewels. And so this, the, the ruby that's, uh, what, six times the size of, what, help, help me do that, 60 times? Well, anyway, it, the one that's 70 carats almost versus five. Uh, he said that it belonged to a Qing dynasty emperor. It's probably 300 years old. And to the naked eye, you know, I, I didn't have a jeweler's loop with me, but it was perfect. And he said, from the way it's cut, we know that it's probably 300 years old. And so just the history of this thing means that the history of it alone would make it fantastically valuable. But then you add that it's one of the rarer, perfect rubies in the world. It's, it's just unthinkable how That's much incredible. it's worth. It's amazing how things just start to intersect in life that just make you know that you're on the right path, right? Yeah, some of the other gifts, uh, sticking with jewelry, there's one of the larger perfect emeralds, and it was recovered from the uh, treasure ship Atocha, which sank in 1622, and it was meant for the Queen of Spain. Uh, that's a donation. It's uh, another one. There are two brothers who inherited uh, 12 dinner plates that belonged to Tsar Alexander II. Uh, made in 1822. And they're historic as all get out because he was the Tsar liber liberator. He's the one who who freed the Russian slaves. I think they're called serfs. Uh, there are 14 of them that we know of in the world. Two are in museums in Russia. These guys have 12 perfect plates from back then. And we already know that there's a Russian oligarch that wants to buy them because he believes in cultural repatriation. So when they're put up from auction, you know, there's somebody who's going to bid a lot to get them. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, for people that want to get involved with this, you know, how can they donate items or gifts to the cause? Is that your website and a contact form or how do they go about yeah, that? Yeah, they can do it. But uh, since the auction is, you know, the first auction, I don't think it will happen before in a year and a half from now. And it could be two years. So, I mean, if they've got something that they'd like to donate, if it's ultra high value, um, you know, I'd love to know about it. If it's, uh, if it's for the, for the rest of us items, I'd love to know about that too, but that could easily be three years off. Sure. Sure. So that even though but, it's a little still, while I'd off, love to but, know about it. yeah, I mean, you're in a curating time period right now, right? Because the auction has been pushed, pushed off. So if there's another almost 70 carat Ruby sitting out there, which I'm sure somebody has something, but you know, even if it's a million dollar item or a $10 million item, that's something well, that's like the million dollars are, is the range that, that, that I've got most of. Perfect. Uh, I, I, of course, mentioned to you the most interesting and amazing ones. Well, of course, everybody know, was, wants to hear about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a guy in Argentina who, before COVID-19 struck, he has a yacht, a great big yacht uh, that he can't sell in Argentina because they are having all these financial difficulties. And so he thought the highest and best use for it would be to have it auctioned. That's exciting. There's a guy in the United States with a hotel and he's, I believe he's in his eighties. He doesn't have any heirs. Uh, he wants to do something about human trafficking. So, I mean, there might even be a hotel put up for auction. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> awesome. So around the million dollar mark is what most of the items are that you receive, correct? Yeah. And, and below that, I mean, we love them and we want them, but they, they won't be part of the ultra high net worth auction because we have to limit it to a hundred items because uh, it just gets cumbersome beyond that. And by the way, I could deal with cumbersome, but I think we're talking about things like catalogs and time that the auction takes yeah. and so on. That's awesome. Well, Mitzi, thank you so much for talking with me today. I want to spread the word as much as you on this and we're both attacking this in, in ways that we can contribute and that's how everybody else needs to look at it too. I mean, that's just the beautiful thing because whatever your skill or interest is, we've got room for you. I mean, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you're a great typist, maybe you're a great researcher. Uh, yeah, there's the, we will find a wonderful use for you if you will just go to winthisfight.org or if you'll text WTF, and yes, I know what it sounds like or is, type WTF to 51555. That's it, folks. WTF to 51555. Mitzi Purdue, you're amazing. You're just <laughs> beautiful as all anything, and I appreciate you being on today. Thank you. What a privilege to be on. Thank you so much. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.